WAGP.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and we welcome questions you may have as you're studying God's Word or challenges you're facing in life that you would like biblical counsel on. This is an opportunity to call in during the next hour. Again, locally, the phone number is 525-1859, for those outside the immediate listening area, maybe listening through the Internet in another part of the country. The toll-free number is 877 877- WAGP 980, or as always, you can email us directly into the studio. We're happy to receive your questions that way. And the email address is TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. TBL at WAGP.net. So, any of those ways uh, will get you through. If you call and want to remain anonymous, you're free to do so. So, um, uh, We'll help however we can by God's grace. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. Indeed it is, Pastor, and uh, there must be a lot of questions on people's minds because uh, all the lines just lit up, and let's see if anybody is going to be going live. I don't see any indication of that. So let's go to uh, a question that we had sent to us uh, via the Internet. Uh, Daryl from Richmond Hill would like to know if you've ever heard of the Vineyard Church, and what, uh, if you have heard of them, would their fundamental beliefs be? Well, the Vineyard Church movement goes back uh, to a fellow by the name of John Wimber in the 1980s. He was uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary, and uh, he uh, wanted to start a movement that, if I remember correctly, that blended both Pentecostal theology and uh, evangelicalism. Uh, he, He felt like maybe the Pentecostal movement didn't have enough substance to it in terms of uh, Bible doctrine. So he tried to blend the two. Uh, In either case, he was a pretty controversial guy. He taught a course at Fuller Seminary in the 80s. Fuller was a seminary by that time that was adrift. There were still some good people there, but they had uh, outrightly denied biblical infallibility. To this day, now they do not hold to an errant, infallible Bible. Uh, But he taught a course called uh, Power Evangelism, where he felt like it's the church's responsibility and role to uh, do power evangelism, quote-unquote, in the process of trying to win people to Christ. So there was a great emphasis on the traditional Pentecostal stuff, you know, uh, healing and, um, you know, the dramatic kinds of things that they, they do. Um, like any vineyard church, you have to look at each one uh, individually. Uh, they're not all the same. Some have gone so far as to get involved in spiritism. Some would disdain that. 
uh, greatly. Uh, so it just depends on the individual church. Uh, Wimber's church uh, continued to develop to the point where uh, he became really the, the, the seed for a later movement that was called the Toronto Blessing. Uh, where you had folks, and this was true in Wimber's church, where they would say, okay, we're not going to do careful doctrinal analysis here today. We're just going to let the Holy Spirit work in our midst. And people would bark like dogs. They would laugh uncontrollably. They would fall on the ground and shake. And these are things that are sometimes accompanied in vineyard churches. So, you know, obviously I'm not too thrilled with it. And um, I think there's a lot of confusion and when you open the door for that kind of thing, uh, you open yourself to all kinds of trouble. So I all hope right. that helps get you thinking a little bit. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Not knowing what the first question would be. I already had it in my mind to just say, give me a simple explanation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, um, you know, you might want to, I, I, I will answer your question, but sometimes when people ask a question, I have a, a long sermon on it, which is more detailed. I also direct them and point them in that direction. Last Sunday's sermon was called, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? And I introduced the sermon by saying, you know, why talk about this ministry of the Spirit? Um, there are so many ministries of the Spirit that we could speak of, some that happen at the moment of conversion. Uh, the baptizing ministry of the Spirit, the sealing ministry, the indwelling, the regenerating. Then there are some ministries of the Spirit of God that are spoken of in the New Testament that are ongoing. Uh, the teaching ministry, the guiding ministry, the comforting ministry, the praying ministry. But what's really interesting is is that uh, it, there, we're never commanded to be taught by the Spirit or comforted by the Spirit or led by the Spirit, but we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Because the filling ministry of the Spirit is an, is a, a ministry that affects our ability to be comforted, led, empowered, and so forth in so many different ways. And so when you say, well, give me in a nutshell the ministry of the Spirit, I have to say, well, which ministry? And I'd also have to say in which covenant, under the old covenant or under the new covenant? I'm assuming you're asking under the new covenant. Because obviously the way he's working today since Pentecost is different than he did with Old Covenant saints. The baptism of the Spirit was something that never took place in the Old Covenant. It was a New Covenant promise. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah spoke of it uh, in the fact that when Messiah would come and die and bleed for our sin and provide forgiveness, he would also provide the opportunity to uh, make us temples of the Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the living stones, to use Peter's imagery, as he quotes from the Old Testament. The chief cornerstone is Christ. He's built us together into one temple, that brought us and bound us together through the same Holy Spirit. And so it's essential that we are filled with him. Every Christian has had the baptism of the Spirit. It's assumed to be true according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Uh, it's something that can never be undone. It's a permanent state. It results in a new position before God that we are identified in the body of Christ. Whereas the filling of the Spirit is something that can be lost 
And so we're never commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And there are four commands in the New Testament that summarize the believer's responsibility. Grieve not the Spirit, quench not the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and so do the Spirit. And if you remember those four commands, you'll understand what your relationship is as a New Covenant believer to God the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Spirit when you do those things you shouldn't do. What sometimes we call today sins of commission, the solution is to confess all known sin in your life. 1 John 1, 9, not a salvation verse, but a verse given to God's people, not to secure salvation, but to maintain intimacy with the Lord. Quench not the Spirit. That deals in the positive realm, as highlighted in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, We quench the Spirit when we don't do those things that we ought to be doing. And so some Christians say, well, you know, I'm not smoking or getting drunk or fornicating or, you know, watching immoral stuff. Well, that's good. And uh, but there are some things maybe that they're unwilling to do in the positive realm. And so for that reason, they're not filled with the spirit. And so Romans 12, one and two is really the solution. We yield our lives to God as a living sacrifice. We're to walk by the Spirit. We are, as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, we're to walk in him, Colossians 2, 7 teaches. We came in a spirit of bankruptcy, so we walk in a spirit of bankruptcy, acknowledging that without Christ, we can't do anything in terms of fruitfulness, in terms of meaningful service for the Lord. And so just as a physical walk is a moment-by-moment thing where one foot is on the ground and one is in the air. The one that is in the air is dependent on the one that's in the ground, on the ground for balance. And so our spiritual life is a moment-by-moment dependency upon the Lord. Walk by the Spirit, Paul will say, that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. The fourth command in the New Testament given to God's people in terms of the filling ministry of the Spirit is we are to sow to the Spirit. And we sow to the Spirit as we feed on the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. So getting back to the first question concerning the vineyard movement, when they would make statements in the vineyard churches, well, you know, we're not here to do doctrinal analysis. We're just here to let the Holy Spirit work. Well, that's a gross misconception of how the Holy Spirit works. He works in conjunction with the Word, with the sword of the Spirit, as the Bible is called in Ephesians 6. So the will of God never contradicts the 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 um the word of god and so we are to feed on god's truth we're to have our minds renewed so that we're not conformed to this world and that we can as a result prove no experience test what god's will is something that's good and acceptable and perfect but again i would direct this caller or anyone maybe listening who'd like to explore it further to the uh, 65-minute sermon last Sunday that should be posted online by now. Is that right, Rick? I was going to do a little editing, but it should be uh, within the next hour or two. All right, great. Let's go to the next question. Terrific. Thank you very much, caller. Uh, Next uh, listener in Savannah would uh, share with us that her husband was caught having inappropriate conversations with different women online. And uh, since she caught him, uh, he does say that he has stopped. He still continues to keep these women as friends on Facebook, He has chatted with many of them, and they sent him intimate pictures. Um, She writes, I want to get him off of his page. I feel as though he shouldn't even associate with these women. He says there's nothing going on, and he will not delete them. He says that he is saved, and she writes, this bothers her so much, she doesn't know how to approach the situation and is fasting and praying about it and is obviously a believer. Well, you know, my heart goes out to you because this is a common problem, and unfortunately, 
uh, through the social networking, something that could be used for good. It's often like the devil often does, uses things for evil. And there are many flirtatious relationships that begin online that turn into adulterous relationships. The fact that some of these women would send to your husband nude photos and then for him to say, well, we're just friends and we're not going to, uh, you know, there's, it's innocent is, uh, you know, obviously ridiculous. Uh, and if you're uncomfortable with any of your husband's friends, then he ought to delete them, block them, uh, if he's serious in his relationship with Christ. I'm assuming, since you are a Christian, that you have uh, a pastor, and you ought to contact your pastor, and maybe with your pastor you could confront your husband. But his <laughs> behavior is totally inappropriate, absolutely inappropriate and unacceptable. And, you know, these guys who say, well, she's just a friend— and, and I know that term is now used in a different context. Sometimes I'll meet men who will say, well, you know, I, you know, I go to lunch with this lady. She's just my friend. Well, that's inappropriate. Um, you know, you go to lunch with your wife who's your friend, but you don't go to lunch with some other woman who's, quote, unquote, your friend. Now, I know the word is now used in a secondary way in these Facebook images where, you know, you might have a woman who— you know, some guy wants to befriend her because he wants to follow her blog. But for some of these guys, their motivations may be really evil. And you need to be very, very careful. But I would just say this. If you are uncomfortable, and you ought to be, especially with these women who posted nude pictures to your husband, they ought to be deleted. But lay that aside, if you're uncomfortable with any of the uh girlfriends who are associated on Facebook with your husband, he ought to delete them. Um, and if he doesn't see that, then he needs to see your pastor and you need to sit down and he needs to be straightened out a little bit. Maybe like you say that, or think, I'm assuming from the question, maybe he's not really a Christian because there are so many people today who are saying they're born again and this is something that God predicted would happen in the end of time where men would have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. And so God tells us and warns us in many places in Scripture to be alert to this. Now, can a Christian get caught up in immorality and impurity? Yes, Paul will say in Ephesians 5, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. That's what we are. We're holy ones, and so it's improper for immorality, impurity to be named among us. And your husband has such naming through the relationships he has on Facebooks. Um, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So he's drawing a parallel. He's saying, listen, we're to be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitators is the command in five one. Uh, mimetus, we get our word mimic from it. We're to be those who mimic the Lord as beloved children. We're to walk in love as Christ walked in love. And he gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. That that's the motivation. Christ died and shed his blood, not so that we could serve the world, the flesh and the devil, but so that we could serve him. And so immorality and purity are not even to be named among us. 
Uh, and then he draws the parallel. He says, listen, as it relates to the lost people who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, um, they're children of wrath. Therefore, he says, you're not to be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So if your husband has no heart to learn the things that are pleasing to God, it may be that he's not really even saved. And he's one of these folks who has a form of godliness, but without the changed life that a second birth brings. Anyway, it's a great question. I will pray for you today that the Lord would give you wisdom on how to proceed in in trying to redeem your marriage relationship. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, our next caller dictated their question. Obviously, the Bible doesn't uh, have anything specific to say about cosmetic surgery, but they would like to know if there are some principles in the Bible and um, uh, what the, you think the Bible says about uh, women in particular electing to have cosmetic surgery that might alter their overall appearance? Well, you know, I suppose some cosmetic surgery you have to allow for. For instance, my dad was an ophthalmologist for 50 years. And sometimes in elderly people, they would have uh, lids that would get wrinkled and heavy and it actually obstructed their vision. And so he would go in and he would remove some of the fatty tissue over the eyelid. And it would sometimes look 10 years younger. Um, and some might say, well, that's cosmetic surgery. Well, I suppose it is, but it's more than cosmetic. It's necessary. And so sometimes there can be issues like that. Sometimes maybe someone has a deviated septum and uh, their their nose needs to be operated on and, you know, it's totally appropriate. But let's lay that aside. You know, all this um, breast implant stuff and, you know, uh, I'm going to remove the 20 pounds of flab from your stomach. And that is uh, something that the Christian should not approach. It's really a denial of how God's made you, how God created you. And what you're really saying as the created thing to the creator, I don't like the way you made me. So I'm going to alter it and I'm going to change it and I'm going to manipulate it. And uh, the key to fat around the stomachs is to get some exercise or to cut back on your food. It's not to have some uh, physician, you know, alter, alter that part of your body. So um, anyway... We could spend a lot of time on that, but let's go to the next question. All right, very good. Uh, David from Worcester, Mass., uh, asks via text and uh, email, does God work in the lives of unbelievers? I was having trouble thinking about this because when in Romans 1, uh, God says he gives them over, does God control the events, i.e. the jobs, deaths, relationships, etc., in the lives of an atheist or agnostic? And does the Scripture support this? Well, it's a it's a great question, and uh, the the answer is yes and no. Without trying to sound too p- political, God yes does work in the lives of unbelievers, but the way He works <laughs> is different from the way He may work in the life of a true saint, a true child of God. Uh, certainly, there is the promise of God's care for those who are lost, and so uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount He speaks of the fact that. God causes the rain 
to shine, to fall on the on the righteous and the unrighteous. His, his sunshine falls on both. Uh, that's an expression of God's general care to those who are lost. Uh, God loves the world, but in another sense, he loves us differently. Uh, Jesus also in the gospel of John speaks of God working in the hearts of the lost in John 16. And, and he it says, um, and, he, and he speaks really of both groups. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, meaning the disciples who were believers, that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And so again, here's God speaking of his work in dealing with the lost people. And the order here is uh, logical. He convicts the world of sin. A man has to be convicted of sin before he can see his need for a savior. Uh, People need to see their sinful state, but then he also convicts them of righteousness. He shows them that the righteousness that they have in themselves falls short of the righteousness that God demands. And so the need for a, a savior But he also speaks of judgment because if a man ignores the work of the Spirit, showing that he is a sinner, showing him that his righteousness falls short of the glory of God, then he will meet God in eternal condemnation. So that's God's work in the life of an unbeliever. Um, And again, Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So God uses sometimes different circumstances Uh, to bring a person to faith in his son. Um, God sometimes uses blessings uh, to bring a person to faith. In Romans 2, there he speaks of, uh, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So there he's speaking of God's goodness to humanity. God's kindness to people. Sometimes we say, well, God needs to make the bottom fall out to get us to look up. And that's often true. And sometimes God allows the bottom to fall out of a person's life. You know, all of a sudden they're stricken, it seems, with cancer or a death of a loved one or they're in some horrible accident. And God uses that, uh, those negative circumstances in life that come for many and varied reasons to get our attention, to show us our need for Christ. But sometimes God doesn't work that way at all. Sometimes God blesses a person. He shows as many expressions of kindness as we just quoted from the Sermon on the Mount, God's care for humanity. Should not the kindness of God lead you to repentance? And the answer is yes, it should, but it doesn't always because of the hardness of man's heart. Now, later on in Romans chapter 8, when he speaks of God's dealing dealings with his people, he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that he, the the son of God might have first, he, the son of God might, the, the firstborn among many brethren might have first place. And so the Lord wants to have first place in our life, and the way he has first place in our life is by conforming us to his image, and the way he conforms us to his image is working the circumstances that 
befall us for our good to grow us up and to sanctify us in the Lord. That's a promise given to those who love God, to those who are called according to his promise. It's not a wholesale promise given to lost people. It is a promise given to those who are saved. So while God loves the world, we are called his beloved. Uh, The verb and the noun form is used. We're beloved of God. That's the verb's form. And then we are the beloved of God. You know, I may love your children, but I promise you I don't love your children the way I love my children because my children have a special affinity in my heart. And so it is when God looks upon the world, his children through a spiritual birth, for as many as received him to them, he has given the right to be called children of God. That is to those who believe in his name. Those folks have a very special place in the heart and plan of God. And so, yes, God works in the lives of unbelievers, but differently. Uh, His heart is to bring them first to Christ. And for those of us who have met Christ, uh, he has a special affinity with us, and we should acknowledge that and grow deeper in it. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thanks for calling today. My question is, um, I was reading about baptism and where John is baptizing and the and the Sadducees and the Pharisees are coming up, and it didn't seem that they were questioning exactly what he was doing. So they must have understood baptism, but how does the New Testament baptism relate to baptism in the Old Testament, and did they even have baptism in the Old Testament? That's a great question. Um, I have a handout that after we hang up, if you want to stay online, we'll be happy to email it to you. It's a 15-page handout on baptism, and I go through virtually everything the Bible says about baptism. And I deal with baptism under the Old Covenant, but primarily, of course, the focus is baptism under the New Covenant. The word baptizo, which is pretty much just transliterated directly into English, uh, has a primary and a secondary meaning. Uh, in Greek, it can mean to immerse. Now, we think of the word baptism today primarily as a religious word. But if you lived in the first century, it had many secular usages. If I um, dyed cloth for a living and I had a piece of white cloth and I wanted to uh, turn it purple, then I would baptize it in purple dye. I would immerse it. That's what the word means, to immerse. And, of course, it becomes a symbol and picture of a number of different things. The word also carries the idea of identification, Uh, identification. So for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and ate the same spiritual, in what sense were they baptized into Moses. Well, they were identified with Moses and his leadership. There is the idea of identification. Uh, it's used in the same fashion in Romans chapter 6. And of course, every time you see the word baptism in the Bible, it doesn't always refer to water. And sometimes people substitute water when it's not referring to water baptism at all. As in the passage I just read there, it's just carrying the meaning of being identified. Uh, In this passage I'm about to read, it's uh, being identified through the Spirit into Christ. Um, He says, or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, 
we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead uh, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we have been buried with Christ through baptism. Church of Christ and the Christian church denomination use this to refer to water baptism. And that's why they teach that unless you are water baptized, you're not saved. Uh, That's heresy. Uh, This has nothing to do with water. Water can't put anyone into Christ, only God the Holy Spirit through a second birth. So I, I raise this because if we understand the meaning of baptism, then we can see how John is using it and even how Jews used it. Uh, There was something that's not mentioned directly in the Bible, though indirectly, but there was something called proselyte baptism. Uh, Proselyte baptism was something that Jews did towards Gentiles to, uh, as an outward sign that they were now becoming part of the covenant community. Uh, The word Jew uh, has a racial uh, <laughs> meaning in the Bible. And so someone could be a Jew in the sense that he's a direct descendant of Abraham. He's associated with one of the 12 tribes, one of uh, Jacob's 12 sons, and therefore physically a Jew. But you can also have a Gentile who becomes a Jew religiously. And so in the book of Esther, in the 10th chapter, it speaks uh, because of the Feast of Purim, of Gentiles who become Jews. Well, how can they become a Jew? Well, they can become a Jew in the sense that they are identifying with the one God of Israel. And so they were baptized. And again, there the word meant to identify. And so when they were baptized in proselyte baptism, after they, the men, of course, were circumcised, taking on that covenant sign, then they were saying, we are identifying ourselves with the God of Israel. Later on, in Israel's history, came the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had a baptism of repentance. And so when you were being baptized, and again, the word meant to immerse, you are identifying yourself with those who were going to repent, those who were saying, I want my heart to be prepared for Messiah. God had promised in Isaiah 40 and the book of Malachi Uh, chapter 4, that he would send a forerunner, a person who would come in the spirit of Elijah, who would come prior to Messiah, who would say, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. And so people who said, yes, we believe what God promised through the ages, beginning with the prophet um, uh, who Moses, who, who wrote the Torah, Uh, is described in Genesis 3 all the way through Malachi. We believe what all the prophets of the Old Testament said that Messiah is coming. And so we want to be ready. And so we are identifying ourselves that our hearts are open to his coming ministry. And so they participated in John's baptism. It didn't save them. It was just a, a symbol that they were saying we're ready. Now, if someone died having never heard the fulfillment of what John promised, then they would have gone to heaven. How did Old Testament saints get saved? Not by good deeds, but by believing what God had promised, Messiah is coming. And so their faith was in the Messiah who would come in the same way I look back at the Messiah who has already come. And so they were looking ahead, I look back. Now, 
John's baptism, again, was a baptism of identification, and it was done by immersion. That's how you did it. But, of course, the water had no power to wash away sin or anything else. Jesus' baptism, sometimes people say, well, I'm following Jesus in baptism. Well, it depends what you mean by that. If you're saying, well, I'm following his example, then your, your understanding is a little twisted. If you're saying, I'm following his command as a Christian to be immersed after I'm saved— which is what Matthew 28 teaches, go therefore and make disciples, or you could say converts, believers of all nations. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in the 11th chapter, he said, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Go just to the house of Israel. Why? Because God gave promises to Israel and God wanted to underscore and under and emphasize that he is a promise-keeping God. And so the Gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek than to the Gentile. But because of their refusal to embrace Jesus as Lord, he said, now go to all nations, all peoples, and make believers, disciples, converts of every people. And when they're converted, then you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you teach them and you instruct them. And that's the pattern all the way through the Acts. People are saved, then they're baptized, which is the uh, outward sign of, of the inward reality, and you can see how baptism really pictures death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and then they're taught and instructed. So Jesus' baptism was unique in and of itself. It was really a foreshadowing of what he was going to do, because baptism under the new covenant, um, post the cross, becomes a picture of death, burial, and resurrection, a symbol of identification. Sometimes I will meet Christians who will tell me, well, you know, I don't feel like I'm ready to be baptized. Well, why don't you feel like you're ready? Well, I'm not sure I'm a strong enough Christian to be baptized. In fact, there are some churches that actually teach that baptism is a mark of uh, committed discipleship and that you shouldn't be baptized until you have shown a certain level of commitment uh, to Christ. The problem with that is that that's not the example in the New Testament. In fact, baptism was usually immediate. And of course, uh, there, I think, is good reason today to take a little more time and examine the candidate because they understood things in the first century that we don't understand today. But lay that aside, uh, people were often baptized the same hour they became a Christian. And that's, um, so that would dismiss that. But baptism is not about me. It's not about what a great Christian I am. I'm not bragging on myself. When I'm baptized as a Christian, I'm bragging on Christ. I'm saying it is by his death, burial, and resurrection, as pictured by going down in the water and up again, that I am saved. And uh, it's giving him glory. That's what it's really about. So there's proselyte baptism. There's John the Baptist baptism. There's Jesus' baptism. There's post-conversion baptism. But I can promise you there's no infant baptism. That's an oxymoron. Because, again, the word baptize means to immerse. And sometimes people take a little water in their hand and they sprinkle it over an infant and they call it baptism. Now, that's not baptizo. That's ratizo. That's, that, that's sprinkling. And there's a perfectly good word in Koine Greek that's found in the New Testament to describe sprinkling, but it's never used in reference to what a believer does. It's always believe and then be baptized. We've reversed it. But this caller might want to get that hand out. All right. I'm going to try and put you on hold uh, for a second there and... Um uh, then somebody should pick up. If we lose you, please call back. They'll take your name and phone number, and uh, 
uh, get you that uh, folder there. All right, 525-1859, toll-free 877-924-7980. And our uh, next caller uh, would like you to explain 1 Corinthians 14. They write, this chapter of Scripture has always confused them, and they found themselves not wanting to read the chapter because it's so hard to understand. Well, um, again, sometimes if I have a resource that I can make available to people for deeper study, uh, and some, you know, sometimes people judge you. Somebody sent us an email, Rick, recently, and they said, well, Pastor Brogy says, well, go to such and such a tape and listen to that. And, um, you know, why doesn't he just quote the Bible? And, you know, like he has some other source. That's the whole purpose of sending you to another tape or another resource because there's a teaching from the Bible that maybe is in-depth and where I might spend three minutes on a question, I might spend an hour on it in a sermon, and I'm just directing, directing, you, directing you further to the Word of God. But I did a series on spiritual gifts in our church. Uh, I did my doctoral dissertation on that subject, and uh, it's of great interest to me. But I deal in depth in the, um, there are seven sections to the course, and the sixth section is called Sign Gifts in the New Testament. And I walk through the gift of tongues that Paul describes in the 14th chapter. One of the things that characterized the Corinthian church was immaturity. And one expression of their immaturity is they took the sign gifts, which the Bible calls the lesser gifts, and they made them and magnified them and their expression in the church. And so uh, they would gather together and there's, you know, something uh, very uh, seemingly wonderful about speaking in tongues and very dramatic and showy. And so they all got together and they were speaking in tongues and there was no one there to interpret. And And so Paul gives some guidelines and One, he says, uh, you know, for you to emphasize tongues, it's to deny the way God constructed the body. That's the 12th chapter. Uh, He gave a variety of different gifts, and not everybody is going to speak in a tongue, are they? No, they're not. Any more than everyone's going to be a a worker of miracles or be a teacher. No, God has created the human body so that every part is dependent on one another for its proper functioning, and so God has... Uh, created the spiritual body in the same way. And so in the 13th chapter, he says, listen, you can have all these gifts operating, but the fact that you're carnal and out of fellowship is seen in the fact that you're not really functioning in love. Uh, Your concern for one another is uh, obliterated by your uh, desire to magnify yourself. And so chapter 13, what we call the love chapter, is sandwiched in the conversation on spiritual gifts. And so then he says in fourteen one, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And so again, the gifts are given as God determines. I don't make that decision what spiritual gift I get. But the church does make a decision in terms of how it should exercise the gifts when they are assembled. And so he says, you, plural, y'all, you could say. I know in modern English we don't have a singular versus a plural you. But in the old English that you'd see reflected, say, in the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, there is the singular you and the plural you. This is you, plural. When you are together as a church— the gifts that ought to be 
highlighted are gifts like preaching, prophecy. And then he goes on and he says, listen, somebody comes in and everybody's speaking in tongues and they're a lost person. They're going to think you're a bunch of nuts. But if uh, tongues were functioning properly, only two or three in a given service, not hundreds, and only then if someone had the gift of interpretation, then the tongue spoken would be understandable and the lost man could understand it. But the thing that you need to give priority to is the preaching of God's word. And so in this handout, Sign Gifts of the New Testament, I walk through chapter 14, and you can do an in-depth study that I think you'll find very helpful. So if that caller wants to uh, call back and give us your email, we'll be happy to send that to you as an attachment. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. Our next uh, listener dictated their question. They would like you to please elaborate on Ezekiel 28, verses 14 to 16. Uh, he writes, I can't find a cross-reference that explains what the fiery stones refer to. Well, Ezekiel 28 is an interesting chapter of Scripture. There are two chapters in the Old Testament that describe the fall of Satan. I always uh, remembered him 14 times 2 is 28. Isaiah 14, uh, 14 times 2 is 28, Ezekiel 28. So those are two key chapters that describe the fall of the evil one. Now, when you hear the name Lucifer today, uh, there's kind of an evil connotation to it. But in its original setting, actually, that was the name of the devil before he became the devil. That was his name when he was the holy anointed cherub. And so in Ezekiel 28, he warns the the king of uh, of Tyre, who claims to be a god, that he's just a man, to, to, to change his uh, thinking, to, to really repent. And so beginning in verse 11 of Ezekiel 28, he then changes the subject and he says things that could not possibly apply to a human being. Uh, he gives a description, a description really of the devil, of Satan, who's behind the king of Tyre, who's operating in and through him. Uh, Jesus did this on one occasion when he said to Peter, he says, listen, um, uh, what what you're doing right now is you don't have your interests on the things of God, but, you know, the, the, the devil's working in you right now, Peter. So in this setting, you have the king of Tyre who is uh, being really empowered by the devil. And so the devil is described and what he was like. And there are things that are said here that could in no way apply to the king of Tyre but to the one who works behind his throne. On the day that you were created, uh, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Um, So he's describing a a particular angel here. Cherubim is the plural of angels, uh, of this kind of angels. Cherub is the singular. Uh, Sometimes I'll hear Christians talk about cherubims. There's no such word. That's like saying deers. No, deer is is the uh, singular or plural in this realm. Cherub is the singular, cherubim is the plural. You are the anointed cherub who covers, and I place you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you are created. You couldn't say that of any human, except maybe Adam. When he was created, he was blameless, He was created with perfection, but you couldn't say that of the king of Tyre or anyone else because from the moment of conception, because we all sinned in in and with Adam, 
we were we are fallen people. But of this anointed angel, you were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Um, and it's, it goes on. It says, by the abundance of your trade, you were inter- internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I've cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So the the caller wants maybe a fuller explanation. Let me direct you to a message I did on Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And that, I think, is posted online. If you go to cbcbuford.org or the new Search the Scriptures website that goes up next week, and all the messages by books are available. You can click on Genesis. You can go to Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And while I deal with Satan, I ask the question, well, where did Satan come from? And we look at Ezekiel 28. Um, So I give a very careful um, explanation of this passage of Scripture. Who were these fiery stones? Uh, There have been different explanations that uh, have been given. Um, In verse 13, uh, I didn't read it, but it says, you're in Eden. Again, speaking of this anointed uh, cherub, who had the seal of perfection, who is full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he lists some of those stones, uh, a number of which are actually found on the the breastplate of the priest in the Old Testament. I don't think that's uh, what's in in view here because uh, he's speaking of Satan who dwelt in the midst of these stones. I think what's probably in view is that angels are described in a fiery way. Uh, In Psalm 104, they're called flames of fire. And so there are a number of different terms that are given in the Old Testament to describe angels. And so think about the devil. He's the anointed angel. He has a high, high position in God's economy in the angelic realm and he's walking and serving and ministering amongst the fiery stones, amongst other angels. And of course, Isaiah 14, where his fall is also described, and where it's also highlighted and looked back on in the book of Revelation, we learn that when Satan rebelled, he took one-third of the angels with him. So two-thirds of the fiery stones remained loyal to God, one-third rebelled against God, and became demons. So I think that's probably really what is in view here uh, in terms of the the fiery stones in whose midst he walked. But again, I would direct you to that sermon in our Genesis series where I go through a careful explanation of the whole passage. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener would like you to please explain Deuteronomy 32, 35, and in particular want to know, how will he repay? Deuteronomy 32, 35. Let me just turn there real uh, fast. He says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip, for the day of their certainty is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. Um, Deuteronomy 32 is an interesting passage. Uh, it's really the song of, of Moses. And Moses gives this marvelous song before he 
leaves this earth and meets God on the top of that mountain, and the Lord takes Moses' life because of his own rebellion. But he's uh, speaking of the children of Israel, and as they're getting ready to uh, come into the promised land and to face the enemies of God, uh, and God's uh, people are going to be given victory because God is going to deal with the Canaanite peoples. Uh, God waits until the iniquity of the Canaanite is full. Uh, that's why he had the children of Israel for 400 years down in Egypt. Why wasn't it 10 years or 30 years or 40? Why 400 years? Because God told Abraham in the book of Genesis, that he was waiting until the iniquity of the Canaanite was full. God gives every opportunity for people to repent. God is long-suffering. He's not desirous that people perish. Ezekiel says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And God waited patiently for the Canaanite to repent. And finally, God's will not keep God will not keep his anger forever as Psalm 103 teaches and so he visits the Canaanite in wrath and God comes in vengeance uh, and he uses as his instrument the people of Israel just like he used Nebuchadnezzar uh, the wicked king of Babylon to uh, judge Israel now I think Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately converted and I preached a sermon once on the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. But nonetheless, God uses them, um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian people, like a hook. And he comes and carries away the, the, the Jewish people in judgment. And so God is going to use as the instrument of his vengeance, his people, when they come into the promised land and they deal with the uh, Canaanite peoples that are, that are there. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. I think we have time for a couple more. Ryan from Boston says he's a college student looking to start studying church history for himself. He was wondering if you'd heard of the history of the Christian church by Philip Schaff. That's what he's looking to study. And he read some good reviews, but was wondering if you had any recommendations. And also, what's the best way to study this? Would it be to read and mark up the book or to take notes? Well, again, it's a, it's a good classic series. It's not for the faint-hearted, it's uh, very in-depth and very involved. It's five volumes, uh, so if you can work your way through it, I think it would be a, a great challenge. Yeah, mark it up. However, you can internalize uh, some of those things. I, I often recommend to people a little simpler one-volume work. It's called the History of Christianity. Uh, it's put out on Erdman's. It comes in and out of print. Uh, I don't know if it's in print right now or not, but if you went to half.com, which is the used side of eBay, and just typed in the history of Christianity, Erdman Press, I'm sure you'll find it instead of paying 60 or $70, which is probably the current price. You probably can pick it up for 3 or $4 plus shipping. Uh, but it would give you, I think, an overview of the history of the church from its inception through the Reformation. And I think you would uh, find that extremely helpful. Then maybe if you wanted to go further, then I would say, well, then go to Philip Schaff's uh, five-volume work because it would give you, I think if you get the big picture first, then you can uh, you can have some context uh, in which to uh, hang the meat on the skeleton. So I would suggest first 
the Handbook of Christianity, um, the History of Christianity by Erdman, and uh, and then maybe consider Philip Schaff's work. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. One question left. Chris from Somerville writes that uh, he listens to you online and also on his way to work to Beaufort sometimes. And his question is, who are the other sheep that Jesus refers to in John ten sixteen? Could they be believers from other sects that believe in Jesus but have only a partially true doctrine, such as the Mormons? Uh, in fact, the Mormons actually use this verse to argue that they are the other sheep. Uh, Jesus said, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. Uh, it has nothing to do with Mormons in the immediate context, he's uh, dealing with uh, false teachers who enter in uh, illegitimate ways in one through five. And then he says, this figure of speech, he spoke to them, but they did not understand. Uh, so Jesus uses a figure of speech to help some of the Jewish leaders to see that they are illegitimate, false teachers, not coming the only way, which is namely through Christ. And then he goes on and he broadens the fold to a flock where he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. And this, of course, is a reference to the Gentiles. Uh, This is a reference to the fact that God would not just have Jewish people, but that God would have Gentile people from every tribe, tongue and nation who would not be two separate churches, but one church. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, referring to the Jewish people who were in unbelief, shall be cast out into the utter darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus speaks of this future working where you would have an international community of both uh, the Jew from the Old Testament, but also the Gentile who's incorporated in. What he says in one verse, Paul spends a chapter and a half on in Ephesians, where he speaks of the dividing wall that has been removed and God has now brought into one body. But the idea that there are other sects that just don't understand and that they are, you know, God's children too, that's that's wrong. Uh, That's what the Mormons propagate, and it's wrong. It's uh, there's salvation only in Jesus Christ. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And you can't be some part of some illegitimate sect or group that denies the gospel of Jesus Christ and be considered a member of his flock. To become a member of his flock, you have to be one of his sheep. To be one of his sheep, you have to receive Jesus as Lord. And if you don't know what that means, call me up. If you're not 100% certain that if you died in the next 10 seconds that heaven is your home, come Thursday night to Community Bible Church at 7 o'clock because I'll be doing a presentation on how to know for certain that I am one of his. And if you want to learn how to give that presentation, you come as well. That will be Thursday at 7. Well, we're out of time. I hope the day has been helpful to you. If you have questions, feel free to email them to us and maybe next week we can address them. God bless you. Have a great day. 